You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Gangsters, the mob, the mafia, we love to hate them. When we think of mobsters, we think of films like The Godfather or people like Al Capone. Perhaps it's because Hollywood often paints the picture that no matter how ruthless they are, they have a code of honor. Or maybe we just want to hear their stories. In the rapidly growing and ever-changing America of the 1820s, street gangs flourished, especially in New York City. Historians accredit this rise in the early 19th century to two things, the Industrial Revolution and the large influx of immigrant workers. Ironically, Americans weren't very tolerant of people coming to the United States in search of a better life. And whatever ethnicity seemed to be the majority arriving, name-calling, stereotyping, and all that goes with racism and xenophobia prevailed. Tension and fear fracture communities. Historians and those who study in the field of human behavior agree. Anytime a society faces division, extremist groups appear. Get people riled up about the economy on top of those fears and it's a powder keg. One that unscrupulous corporations, politicians, and individuals take advantage of. Edward Coleman was one of those people. Tall and intimidating, he ruled the 40 Thieves Gang in New York City with a combination of promise and terror. He targeted children living on the streets regardless of race. Often neglected and underfed, he took them in, promising them food and shelter. No such manipulation would be complete without instilling that the gang was family and society were the outsiders. He made sure they knew he'd stepped in to help them when society had not. The children trusted him, and he used that trust to his advantage. He used children to squeeze through windows too small for adults. Those showing loyalty were given better roles within the gang. Their favorite spot to pickpocket, steal, and otherwise work their trades was the Five Points neighborhood. The community consisted of mostly immigrants who had little police protection, making it an easy choice. The gang set up headquarters in the back of the Center Street Grocery, where owner Rosanna Pierce worked out a deal with the gang. She made good money selling anything from stolen goods to rock-gut whiskey. Every job and every penny the gang brought in was evenly distributed. Those who failed to pull their weight, or anyone thought to be stiffing the group, were dealt with in the harshest of terms. And if you're asking how Coleman could order the beatings or murder of gang members and have the others still be loyal to him, well, that's sadly how abusers work. He might have made the kids and other gang members believe they were family, but no one was exempt from his rules, not even his wife, Anne. She had once worked as a street vendor peddling hot corn. 
Like most immigrants selling wares on the street, she was poor, and Coleman offered her a way to make more money. But when Anne didn't meet the quota he'd set, he beat her, badly enough that she died days later from her injuries. Police arrested Coleman, and after a short trial, the judge sentenced him to death by hanging. After his execution in 1839, the gang continued without him, finally disbanding in the early 1850s. A few started their own gangs, using the same methods to gain new members. But plenty of gang members had come from real families, good families. For them, it wasn't so much a sense of belonging they were looking for. It was the thrill, and the rise to power. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Louis Bookalter was the youngest of seven children. Or maybe it was 11, it depends on the source. A few facts are consistent, though. He was small for his age, intelligent, soft-eyed, and very shy. His parents had fled the violence against the Jewish community in Russia. Though they weren't well off, his father earned a respectable living as the owner of a small hardware store in New York's Lower East Side in the 1890s. His father worked long hours to provide for the sizable family. The schooling was important, and his parents strived to make sure the children had an education. Like all parents, they wanted them to have the best tools to grow into successful adults, after all. But schooling alone isn't parenting, and with such long hours, Lewis's father wasn't home much. To make up for that, his mother doted on the children and gave them pet names. She called Lewis her lepkala, loosely the Yiddish for little Lewis. And like most nicknames, it became shortened over time. Before long, everyone just called him Lepke. When he turned 13, his father died, and the family struggled financially. Some of his older siblings left New York to strike out on their own. Lepke's mother did her best to make ends meet and ensure the rest of her children still did their schoolwork. Without his disciplined father, Lepke took advantage of his mother's soft method of parenting and quit school. He refused to return despite the rest of the family's urging, and instead found himself a job as a delivery boy for $3 a week. He also began to spend time with a variety of known troublemakers. By the time he turned 15, Lepke had committed a string of petty thefts and extortions. In 1912, his mother decided that New York wasn't the place to live any longer and accepted an offer to move in with one of Lepke's older brothers in Colorado. Lepke refused to go, claiming he'd stay with another relative. He assured his mother he would be fine, and she made the journey. Lepke moved as well, to a rented room on the Lower East Side with his friend, Jacob Shapiro. While his sisters and brothers were excelling as dentists and rabbis and in other professions, 19-year-old Lepke stole $500 worth of goods and landed in a different room, one in the Connecticut Reformery, for two years. He convinced the warden that he'd just gotten caught up with the wrong crowd and that at heart, he was a good person. He claimed that the death of his father had affected him greatly, and he'd just made a mistake. The lie fooled the warden, and Lepke's stint behind bars was reduced. Once out, petty theft escalated to armed robbery and grand larceny, all before he turned 25. He rotated between gangs, joining whoever could serve his needs the most. 
While he feigned allegiances, it was all for show. But it worked, and he quickly moved up the ladder. By the time he was 35, he'd been arrested 11 times for everything from assault to homicide. And every single time, he managed to avoid prison. He might not have been great at avoiding the cops, but he was exceptional at reading and playing people. Lepke and longtime friend Shapiro found employment as sluggers. Essentially, businesses at the time often hired men to break up labor strikes by whatever means possible, including extreme violence. When workers went on strike for better pay, time off, benefits, or safety concerns, the sluggers went into the crowds with pipes and clubs. In turn, unions hired their own sluggers. Fights escalated on both sides until guns became as common as bludgeons. Lepke was small, 150 pounds soaking wet. That meant he wasn't well-suited for brawls. What he lacked in physical strength, he made up in other ways, namely his ability to organize, scheme, and motivate others. New York's garment district became a hotbed of strikes and violence, and Lepke found a way to make the most of it. He earned $150 for breaking up small sweatshops and $600 for larger ones, $60 for shooting someone in the leg, $200 for breaking a union boss's arm or throwing them down an elevator shaft. Lepke, Shapiro, and a fellow slugger named Curly Holtz thought infiltrating the unions would net them even more money. Their boss, Jacob Augie Organ, disagreed. He wanted to stick to their tried-and-true methods. The men got along with their boss and played by his rules for a while. That changed when Augie was offered $50,000 to end a strike by threatening to kill the union leaders. Lepke, Shapiro, and Holtz believed cultivating the union leaders would work better. Augie cut them out of the deal and turned to another gang, the Diamond Brothers, to accomplish his goal. As you might imagine, that didn't sit well with Lepke and the others. On October 15th of 1927, Augie and Jack Diamond were driving on the Lower East Side when another car cut them off. Three men jumped out and opened fire on Augie and Diamond. Augie died on the spot, but Diamond survived. During the police interrogation, he refused to name the three men who'd shot at them. Knowing the close relation Augie had with Lepke, Shapiro, and Holtz, they were questioned. Naturally, they had an alibi. All three men claimed they were at the movies together at the time of the shooting. Lepke had taken out his former friend and boss, effectively putting himself in power. But that didn't mean there wouldn't be consequences. On November 19th, one of Augie's most loyal men shot and killed Holtz in a drive-by shooting. Lepke found out who had pulled the trigger and had him killed, then announced he'd be taking over as the gang's new boss. Lepke and Shapiro changed the way the business worked. Where Augie had taken on any client with a paycheck, the new bosses were more discerning. They set their sights on the garment trade, which expanded their territory beyond the boroughs. Narrowing their scope, they'd established themselves into other states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. Instead of plain brute force, Lepke added bribery. The combination altered labor racketeering, giving him solid leverage in the garment industry. By 1929, there were 50 enforcers, bookkeepers, and foremen, bringing in millions for Lepke and Shapiro. By 1930, the two had a monopoly on extortion in the industry. 
Lepke assimilated smaller gangs. Like many big city crime bosses, he subscribed to the murder and mayhem style of controlling his ranks. He became so proficient, journalists began reporting Lepke's business as Murder Incorporated. As you might guess, all of this attracted the attention of New York's most influential mob bosses. Five Italian families, known as the Commission, had established themselves as the governing body for the American Mafia. The head of one of those families, notorious mobster Lucky Luciano, authorized Lepke's boss status, but at a cost. Lepke and his organization would become the Mafia's enforcement squad. As a retainer for their services, Murder Incorporated received $12,000 yearly to be on call day or night. While the commission could have easily put in their own men, they liked Lepke. He had a way of conning people, ruled with an iron fist, and was heartlessly brutal. He also had no problem sending his men anywhere in the country for hits. To distance the families from the hired help for reasons of plausible deniability, Luciano had Lepke report to a Brooklyn mobster by the name of Albert Anastasia. Layers between the men made it difficult for the legal system to prove anyone's involvement. If one went to prison, he'd be less likely to implicate the others. It had worked so far. As a layer between Lepke and his boss, Mafia hitman Abe Rellis paired Murder Incorporated's hitmen to various jobs. Lepke ensured everyone followed the script. After a hit, they'd return to their home base in Brooklyn. Police would scramble to find a local killer, not realizing the murderer wasn't tied to the victim and was no longer in the state. The commission's crime bosses always had a block-tight alibi when a hit went down. Between 1931 and 1940, Murder Incorporated was contracted for a thousand hits, only 200 of them in New York City. Life was good for Lepke and Shapiro. Lepke got married on March 20th of 1931 to Betty Wasserman, a waitress who had caught his eye at a nightclub. She'd been married before, but then widowed. Lepke adopted her young son as his own, and the three lived in a luxury apartment overlooking Central Park West. To occupy her time, Betty ran a handbag company. It all seems like a Hollywood script for your average neighborhood crime boss family. Things were about to get complicated, though. In the mid-1930s, at the height of Lepke's power, he arranged his most significant murder yet. Dutch Schultz made his living much like most other New York gangsters, bootlegging, tax evasion, and restaurant owner extortion. He also ran an illicit lottery, fixed, of course. Of all his crimes, it was tax evasion that got him into trouble with the courts and a tough-as-nails prosecutor by the name of Thomas Dewey. But by the time Schultz finally made it to trial in 1934, Dewey had left the DA's office. The trial ended in a hung jury, despite the clearly damning evidence. Schultz didn't seem particularly surprised with the outcome. He painted himself as a good man who did good things for the community, whom the government had unfairly targeted. He gave toys to sick children and donated to charities. With anti-government sentiment running high, his lies and misdirection worked. But his freedom came at a cost, and Schultz didn't have the money for the payoff. Taking from the committee would be a death sentence, so he stiffed his subordinates instead, mainly his runners. 
It didn't take long for word to reach upper-level bosses that the runners weren't getting paid. Schultz claimed it was an oversight. No one particularly bought his excuse, and it permanently damaged his relationship with the gang. To make matters worse, Mayor Enrico LaGuardia ordered Schultz's arrest if he ever stepped foot in New York City again, forcing him to move to New Jersey. Not long after that, Dewey came back to the DA's office and began working on an airtight case to convict him. All the attention didn't put Schultz on Luciano's good side. In an attempt to show he was loyal, he converted to Roman Catholicism. Then he asked for a favor, a hit on Prosecutor Dewey. Lepke didn't like the idea. It was too high a profile, he argued. It would bring too much attention. Luciano agreed with Lepke. Schultz was furious, threatening that if Murder Incorporated didn't take care of Dewey, he would do it himself. In fact, he went directly to several men in the organization to stake out the prosecutor's building. The committee met to discuss the situation. In the end, they decided to eliminate Schultz. Two Murder Incorporated hitmen walked into the Palace Chop House restaurant on October 23rd of 1935 and opened fire on his bodyguards. They found Schultz in the bathroom and shot him as well. The bodyguards died within a couple of hours, and Schultz died from his injuries a day later. His guts had been ruptured. For the committee, the problem appeared to be solved. Thomas Dewey, however, had other plans. What had happened was this. After watching the city's growing crime rate and corruption within the government, Thomas Dewey left his comfortable job in a private law firm to return as special prosecutor at the district attorney's office. In fairness, the job had been offered to others, but considering the committee and the other crime bosses in the area, no one wanted the job. Dewey was smart, highly motivated, dedicated, and darn good at his job, which was bad news for New York's underworld. Still, he had his work cut out for him. District Attorney William Copeland Dodge was rumored to be in the mob's pocket. Despite the rumors, Dewey's first order of business was to take down Luciano. And in 1936, he managed to do just that. He collected enough evidence to put the mob boss away for 50 years. Though Luciano was behind bars, Murder Incorporated continued to thrive. Lepke hunted down those he thought might be working with Dewey, including a former garment industry worker who had refused to leave town. With Schultz gone and Luciano behind bars, Dewey set his sights on Lepke and Shapiro. While he wanted them for their roles in Murder Incorporated, he had them arrested for outstanding antitrust charges from 1933. The two were found guilty of racketeering on November 8th of 1936. The judge handed them each a two-year sentence and a $10,000 fine. Dewey was ecstatic, though that was short-lived when he learned the men's defense team had appealed and asked for bail. Though he presented his concerns to the judge, the men were free within 24 hours. Lepke and Shapiro had two choices, run or serve their sentences. In the interest of the crime families, the committee strongly suggested they serve their time to keep the DA office's star prosecutor from digging further. On a hunch, Dewey took a closer look at the judge who had let Lepke and Shapiro walk. He discovered the men had given the judge a $25,000 loan. 
He also uncovered a long list of cases where the judge had profited more than $400,000 on altering verdicts. The scandal lost the judge his job and landed him behind bars. For New York's underworld, Dewey was upsetting their way of life. And since they couldn't take him out, they took or threatened witnesses. And soon, with a lack of witnesses, any case had been building against Lepke and Shapiro nearly fell apart. Max Rubin had been one of Lepke's top men. Well-educated and good at paying attention to details, Rubin saw the dominoes falling. In the best interests of his own skin, he made a deal. He appeared before the grand jury on September 17th of 1937 and told the court everything. The racketeering, bribes, murders, violent takeovers, and the names of Lepke's connections from kingpins to politicians. Lepke and Shapiro were found guilty. Instead of serving their time, both men made a run for it. However, hiding from their problems didn't make them disappear. They'd also been indicted for extorting bakeries and a slew of new racketeering charges that would guarantee a harsher sentence. To top it off, the FBI's narcotics division uncovered evidence that Lepke had been involved in a drug ring and bribery of U.S. customs officials and recovered $10 million worth of heroin. The lower players in Murder Incorporated also saw the writing on the wall and turned state's evidence. By the end of 1937, 31 people, including Lepke, were indicted on drug smuggling charges. The FBI had an all-out manhunt for the fugitives. They applied pressure on contacts, family, and friends, as well as locking down the men's assets. Shapiro surrendered on April 14th of 1938. Lepke did not. The story spread. Before long, it seemed every law enforcement agency in the country was looking for him. They had no idea he hadn't fled the state, the country, or even the city. Lepke was hiding exactly where no one expected him to be. Dewey's backyard. Not literally, mind you. But Lepke had more contacts than anyone knew. He hid in apartments above Italian restaurants and in various mob widows' back rooms. He called in every favor he could. And he was still doing business with Murder Incorporated. His boss, Anastasia, kept the whole operation moving as though nothing had changed. Lepke continued to heavily target those who turned against him. A hit on Max Rubin failed. He survived a shot to the head and continued his testimony. Another hitman mistakenly took out the wrong person, killing a witness's lookalike instead. Lepke's attempt to tie up loose ends had started to unravel. Twenty of New York's finest were devoted to tracking him down. The city offered a $25,000 reward. The FBI upped the reward to $500,000. Everyone expected a quick capture with such a price on Lepke's head, but it didn't happen. It took an entire year before Lepke turned himself in. Dewey ensured that all testifying witnesses had a police bodyguard, though that didn't always work out. By 1939, and with Lepke still in the wind, resources were strained. Rumors flew that had fled to Poland and then to Palestine. Radio host Walter Winchell broadcasted messages in case Lepke was listening. Surrender, the radio host said, and the crime boss would have safe passage overseas. As it turned out, 
Lepke had been listening. One day, he turned himself in directly to J. Edgar Hoover in front of a Manhattan hotel. He thought he would face lesser charges and serve a maximum of 10 years. Of course, Winchell and the FBI had never offered such a deal. He was found guilty of narcotics trafficking and sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. But New York wasn't done yet. They tried him on labor extortion. Soon, Lepke was staring down 30 to life, and that was just the beginning. After being transferred to Leavenworth in Kansas to begin his sentence, he was indicted for the murder of a Los Angeles mobster and casino owner. Then, in late 1941, he was again indicted for murder, three to be exact. Abe Rellis, who'd once handed him hit lists, turned state's evidence against him. Lepke was found guilty and sentenced to death. His defense team went to the Supreme Court, but in the end, they upheld the conviction. Lepke was transferred to Sing Sing to await execution. On March 4th of 1944, guards led him to the electric chair. Lepke, the man who'd enjoyed the thrill of being king of Murder Incorporated, pleaded for his life. And, like his victims, those pleas fell on deaf ears. He would be the only crime boss to die by electrocution. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50. And it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey, 
Aside from execution style and drive-by shootings, Murder Incorporated's hitmen employed another method of murder, ice picks. Assassins like Abe Ellis and Irving Cohen would ram the ice pick through the target's ear and into their brain. No one noticed an ice pick or heard a gunshot. It was simple, effective, and brutal. But regardless of the method, escaping a hit was usually futile. And for those on the inside, leaving the company alive was unheard of. But Cohen managed to do just that. In July of 1937, the mob learned that underling Walter Sage had been skimming profits from the slot machines in the Catskill Mountains. Intending to show him the error of his ways, they sent Cohen and another hitman, Jack Drucker, to pay Sage a little visit. The two hitmen arrived at the Hotel Ambassador in the Catskills in a stolen green Packard, driven by an unknown third party. Cohen was an old acquaintance, so Sage unsuspectingly slid into the passenger seat while Cohen and Drucker sat in the back. He also couldn't have suspected that another hitman, Pretty Levine, was following them. Halfway to their destination, Cohen grabbed Sage around the neck, and Drucker repeatedly stabbed him with an ice pick. Sage managed to yank the steering wheel, sending the car out of control and into a ditch. The stabbings continued. 32 of them before Sage stopped fighting. All of this was par for the murder-incorporated course, but then something truly unexpected happened. Cohen bolted. We can all understand if he felt a bit jittery, he had just helped carry out the murder of a close friend, and he was bleeding. During the struggle, Drucker had struck Cohen as well. Seeing as he was friends with Sage, Cohen worried that Drucker and Levine had meant to target him too. In a moment of panic, he ran from the car into the woods. Now on the run, he figured his best bet would be to put as many miles between him and Brooklyn as possible. He headed to Los Angeles, where he met heavyweight prizefighter turned actor Maxie Rosenblum. Living under the assumed name Jack Gordon, Cohen began landing acting parts in small studio productions. Of course, he always played gangsters, a role he must have found rather easy. Oddly enough, years later, Francis Ford Coppola drew inspiration from a few movies Cohen had acted in. Cohen didn't contact any of his friends or family back home in New York. Even though he was landing acting roles, no one recognized him, and no one knew where he'd gone for two years. Until, one afternoon, Levine and another associate decided to catch a movie, The Golden Boy. Neither man could believe their eyes. While watching the climactic boxing scene, they noticed Cohen in the crowd. The two immediately reported what they'd seen, but no one believed them. They insisted that the man playing the part of a bystander didn't just look like Cohen, it was him. Their bosses finally relented to watch the late showing the next day, all joking that if crime didn't pay, they'd head out to Hollywood. After the showing, they agreed that yes, Cohen was alive and in Hollywood, and Naturally, he couldn't be allowed to just leave Murder Incorporated knowing all he knew. They dispatched one of their best to Los Angeles to take care of the problem. But word about Cohen's career change traveled fast, and the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office made a phone call out west. Deputies found him in an apartment playing cards with friends just across from the Paramount Studios lot. He had just landed a role in the movie The Seahawk with Errol Flynn. As they handcuffed him, Cohen told the deputies that he'd played a cop once. 
During the trial in New York, Levine told the court that he'd watched Cohen help murder Sage. The testimony upset Cohen so much that he broke down sobbing, causing the judge to call for a short recess. The defense insisted that Levine wasn't exactly the most reliable witness and asked the jury if they thought his word was gospel enough to send Cohen to the electric chair. And they didn't. And so Cohen returned to Los Angeles to live out his days as Jack Gordon, working for decades as an actor. He appeared in such classic shows as Bonanza, Gunsmoke, The Virginian, and even several episodes of Perry Mason, where, believe it or not, he played a specific type of character, hitmen and gangsters. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.